Welcome, everyone, to the Week 14 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm Rich Samini, and I cover the Jets for ESPN. Hope everyone enjoyed their Thanksgiving holiday. And speaking of which, thanks for everyone for checking out the podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Flight Deck wherever you find your podcasts. I'm excited about this particular show. In the second quarter, we'll talk to former Jets quarterback, Boomer Esiason. We're going to talk about the current state of his old team. And we're also going to take a look back at one of the momentous games in Jets history. This is the 25th anniversary of the infamous fake spike game. The Dolphins are coming to town this weekend, so it's apropos. And who better to talk to about it than my old friend Boomer Esiason. That's the second quarter. But first, let's talk about what happened on Sunday in Cincinnati, a 22 to 6 loss to the previously unbeaten, previously winless Bengals. Let's get that straight. By now, you're aware of this very, very sobering fact. The Jets become the first team in NFL history to lose two games in the same season to teams that were 0 and 7 or worse. Of course, they lost to the Dolphins in week nine. They were 0 and 7, Cincinnati 0 and 11. I'm not talking Jets history, people. I'm talking NFL history. So the Jets made history on Sunday, not the kind that you want. And everyone's wondering, how in the world does something like this happen? How do you go from a three-game winning streak where you're averaging 34 points a game to getting blown out and not even getting in the red zone? Let's break it down right now. Number one, it started last Monday when Andy Dalton was named the quarterback in Cincinnati, they benched their rookie, Ryan Finley. From what I'm told, some people close to the situation in Cincinnati, their new coach, Zach Taylor, heard the grumbling in the locker room. Players wanted Dalton. He did not want to lose the locker room, so he named Dalton the quarterback. And when he's the quarterback, that they're better than a winless team. He's a proven vet- veteran quarterback who just got caught up in a bad situation. So that was the first thing that started hurting the Jets. The second thing, Cincinnati's defense, the perception that their defense has just got awful is not true. Now, it is true they're ranked 32nd against the rush, and a lot of people in my business have used that stat in recent days. It's a little bit lazy because if you take a look at their four, their last four games, they were actually 14th in the league in yards allowed per rush. So, yeah, they're not a good defense, but they weren't the pushover that everyone was making them out to be. Number three, the Jets do not know how to handle prosperity, and that's the sign of an immature team. It tells me, it raises some question about the leadership of the team. This is the fourth straight loss they've had when they've been the favorite in a game. Only three of those occurred this year. And that actually ties the longest stretch of losing as a favorite for the Jets since 1994 when Pete Carroll was the coach and our friend, Boomer Esiason, was the quarterback. So they don't know how to handle prosperity, and that's something they have to learn. Number five, on paper, the ta- are they really worse than the Bengals? I mean, let's look at it. Other than safety, where do you think the Jets have an edge in talent over the Bengals? Not cornerback, not defensive line. Not even quarterback, because Andy Dalton, like I said, he's okay. And Sam Darnold's still on the way up. The sad truth is that these teams are very comparable in terms of talent. Number five, a horrific day by the offensive line. 
they had seven penalties in this game. If they had won fewer penalties, we said we could have called this a theme park day because it would have been six flags instead of seven. I mean, seven flags for the offensive line that totaled 53 yards and penalties, but it's actually more than that. Cause if you look at the hidden yardage, the amount of times they wiped out good gains with penalties, it's really 82 yards plus a safety. So that's big points. That's hidden yardage. That's points on the board, all because of stupid mistakes by the offensive line. Uh, Le'Veon Bell said it best after the game. He just called it bad football. Number six, Adam Gase. Overall, this really falls on him ultimately. I think the mindset of the team, they seem lethargic to me. That falls on him. The lack of discipline with the penalties, that falls on him. I think he called a lousy game on the offensive side. Le'Veon Bell had only five carries in the first half. They ran 37 plays in the first half. Only nine of those were designed runs. Uh, that's just, it's now it's a little bit skewed because of the two minute drill at the end of the half. But even with that, it's still too lopsided. Let's call it what it is. This whole Bell signing in March has been a bust. I'm not saying that's because of him. It's multiple reasons. Bad offensive line, not using him correctly. It just, he doesn't fit their scheme that well. I just think it's been a bust. And, and actually, I think they should just trade him in the offseason. I think both sides will be better off. Uh, another thing on Gase, Darnold threw 19 passes in this game of 20 yards or longer. He only hit six. Why not try a quick passing attack where you get at, get rid of the ball quickly, short passes, takes the pressure off the offensive line? That's what Dalton did against the Jet D, and it worked brilliantly. Um, so uh, the Jets, the passing attack was strangely too aggressive, and the thing in fact, Adam Archuleta of CBS brought this up a couple of times during the telecast, and it's a really good point. If if you're going to run the ball against the Bengals, run to the outside, run to the edges. Instead, the Jets just ran up the middle. And here's the stat. I looked it up. According to ESPN Stats and Information, the Bengals are giving up seven yards per carry on the season when you run outside the tackles. So what do the Jets do? They run up the middle where the Bengals are actually a respectable 4.3 a carry. That was bad strategy on Adam Gase's part. You put it all together, and it's one of the worst defeats ever, ever in Jets history. Uh, yeah, a lot of frustration out there. I totally understand it. Uh, I mean, Jamal Adams was practically in tears after the game. Uh, he had tears welling in his eyes. I don't know if I've ever interviewed a player who was that close to crying after a game. Uh, you know, it was just, it was just a really weird vibe in the locker room, frustration, but a lot of players just spitting out cliches. I would have hoped that one player would have shown some anger at least, but I didn't see any of that anger except for Adams. There was no emotion, just a bunch of robots spitting back what Adam Gase told him. And that bothered me a little bit. Now, one player, and I'm not going to name his name because I don't want to embarrass him. He's actually a very media-friendly guy. I went up to him after the game, and I said, can you got a minute to talk? And this player, who I will not name, but he knows who he is, he goes, I'm sorry, I can't talk. I have to go take a dump, which seems like a fitting way to end the first quarter. And welcome back to the second quarter. This is uh, a special guest here today. Uh, former Jet quarterback, former NFL quarterback, now all over Mr. Media Man, CBS, FAN, Boomer Esiason. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us, Boomer. 
It's my pleasure, Rich. Thanks for having me on. You know, uh, Sunday at uh, Paul Brown Stadium, your name was on the board as a, a part of the answer to a trivia question. It was name the three quarterbacks in Bengals history who threw five touchdowns in a game. And uh, and you did it. And uh, Andy Dalton. You know who I did it against. I, I didn't know it until they flashed. Yes, it was against the Jets. <laughs> That's right. It was against the New York Jets. I think it was like one of the, either our last or fifteenth game of the year, and I want to say like nineteen, I don't know, eighty six or eighty seven. I'm not really sure. Somewhere early in my career. Yeah, and uh, Andy and uh, Carson Palmer. So those were your name was in lights uh, yesterday or uh, Sunday at Paul Brown's. So um, speaking of old, going back a little bit, I just before we get into the current state of the Jets, and there's certainly a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff we could go there, but. On November 27th, it was the 25th anniversary of the fake spike game. And, of course, the Dolphins are coming to town this weekend. So I just wanted to take – I know this is not a pleasant trip down memory lane because the Jets lost that game 28-24. We know how it ended <laughs> with Dan Marino's, you know, really an all-time great sleight-of-hand play. With no, fake. it wasn't. Stop overreacting. <laughs> and, by the way, Rich, you know, for three years that I worked at the Jets, you always had a propensity to bring up the negative with me. Well, that, well, that is true. But the, we're 25 years removed from this. I know, but it's kind of a thing, you know. So, hey, I've been covering the Jets for 31 <laughs> years. It's been mostly negative, you know. If We'll talk know, about the anniversary of the Super Bowl if I was covering it back then, but I was barely born. So, uh, I hear you. I, I get it. But I have to tell you, this whole thing about this sleight of hand and everything else, first of all, Bernie Kosar was the backup quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. Right. Bernie used to do this with the Cleveland Browns all the time. He tried to do it to us in Cincinnati, I don't know, 10, 15 times. Everybody was aware of it. Marvin Washington continued to play. Aaron Glenn was all over Mark Ingram. It was just a perfectly thrown back shoulder ball that Ingram makes, you know, a, a perfect catch to it. He had a, he had a game of a lifetime. I think he had four touchdowns in that game. And the fact that it's known as a spike game, I get it because I'm in the media and we have to label things. Right. But I mean, it's just, it's overdone. I mean, it's just like how many quarterbacks have done the same thing. Uh, throughout the, the history of football and have had some success with it and, and some haven't had success with it. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. You sat next to Dan Marino for many, many years on the NFL Today set for CBS. And so how did it come up? It must have come up, right? I mean, he must oh, have yeah, brought that. Always. <laughs> always. He was bringing, him bringing it up, of course. Yeah, he, he loves to torment Jeff fans. You know, I mean, that's just, that's his, he lives for that. And, you know, because he lives in Miami and there are millions of Jet fans that live down there around him, uh, he just loves talking about that game and, and certainly loves, uh, you know, tweaking me about the game as well. Um, so I, I get it. I understand it. And, and because of really what that game ended up leading to and the abyss that the New York Jets went into literally right after that game, and I was a part of that, um, was, was historic. It was a historic uh, level of uh, inept decision making, inept coaching, inept playing, uh, and it was and it wasn't cleaned up and fixed until they brought in the perfect personality, and that was Bill Parcells. You're absolutely right because the Jets lost the rest of the games that year, and Pete got fired. Pete Carroll, who you know was a really turned out to be a pretty good coach, I'd say, and uh, then of course the co-tight, you know, error I'll the call bottle. it. 
debacle. Yeah, that's a good word. I mean, so yeah. really, after that fake spike game, and my math might be a little bit off, but I think the Jets lost like 33 out of 37 games, which is just mind-boggling. I think four and thirty-two would be more apt, but I or maybe five, maybe four and thirty-three yeah. or four and thirty-four, some something like some that. Un, un crazy, you know, crazy number. Well, you know, the whole thing for me, from my perspective, uh, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of strange things that happened when I got traded to the Jets, mm-hmm. and it all started with them giving me Kevin Kenny O'Brien's number before Kenny O'Brien was off the roster, right? And then Bruce Cosby gets fired, Pete Carroll gets hired, who, by the way. Uh, his coaching style back then was was being criticized. However, it's the coaching style that is you know that they use today. Uh, Pete was was kind of a player's coach. Uh, he was also a coach that at, at that young age really understood so much more than I could have ever imagined that he did on the football field and as a coach and as a communicator. Somebody who I absolutely loved and adored playing for uh, to the day that you know I went in there to get a bonus check. And saw Richie Kotite walking in the building after I had just gotten done talking to Pete Carroll, and then finding out literally ten minutes later that uh, Pete had been let go and Richie Kotite was hired. Oh. That was that was about the most bizarre day of my life, my professional life, and uh, just really hard to believe that that Mister Hess had made that decision. But people tend to forget that we lost Dick Steinberg that summer. You know, he was mm-hmm. the general manager and vice president of player personnel, I believe. And we lost him to cancer that summer. So the the organization was somewhat leaderless at that point, and uh, it, it led down just an absolutely atrocious road. Man, you talk about chaos. So you're walking in, seeing your one coach, and then the other coach is coming in. That, and when you say that's like the craziest, you've seen a lot of crazy in your career. So that I, I know, I know, I have. I mean, uh, but that was really bizarre. And and I I I, I literally thought maybe they were hiring Richie as a tight ends coach or something, or maybe Richie was just coming to, I didn't know that Mr. Hess was in the building. I don't even know if he was in the building that day, but he must've been. I know that Mr. Gutman was there um, because I do believe uh, he was probably the one who delivered the news to Pete, I would think. So I, I never really got a full handle on that day and how things unfolded. All I know is that, you know, my check didn't bounce, which was good. Good. Uh, so I got the money that I was promised. And uh, and I got a new head coach uh, on the same day after talking to my my previous head coach literally ten minutes before, telling me wow. all the changes that they were going to make in the off season. Wow, that is that is wild. One last question about the fake spike game. So you lose this twenty eight twenty four, this heartbreaking game. Uh, you know, you throw a, I think a pick or two in that game. And so I know you've told me this story before, but it's a classic. There were a lot of touchdowns in that game too, you know. You did. I mean, you had you had a lead. You you gave the team a lead, and then and Marino just <laughs> did Marino things. And so you're driving yeah. to New York City, driving to Manhattan after the game, and and maybe you could pick it up from there. I guess this is a classic. Well, a big decision for a Jet player going back to Long Island is: Do I take the George Washington Bridge, or do I take the Lincoln Tunnel? And I was in my brand-new Ford Explorer. I had tinted windows. Nobody knew I was in that car. Um, I decided to take the Lincoln Tunnel. And, you know, of course, uh, because the media guy that I am, I turn on the radio, and I I don't know who was on, but somebody was just killing me for throwing an interception late in the game. And, you know, and as I was trying, I remember throwing it, I think trying to hit Stevie Anderson across the middle. And I think I threw it a little bit behind him. I think it went off his hands. And it was, a, it was an interception that, you know, kind of like 
fuel the, the momentum that they were that they were feeling that we all were feeling on the field at the moment. And if we would have hit that pass, I think it would have calmed everything down, and maybe we would have won. So, of course, I'm listening to the radio and and uh, <laughs> just getting blistered, and I'm just like, oh my god, I can't believe this, man. Why did I want to come home and do this? You know, all this other stuff and. There's a car accident that kind of happens next to me, and it's a woman in a car. And she's wearing like a, if I remember, like a, either a jersey or a sweatshirt. It was green, and she had a cigarette in her hand on the uh, steering wheel, and it looked like she was knocked unconscious. And I had the distinction, or the, I guess I don't say distinction, but I guess I was sitting in that car deciding whether or not do I get out in traffic approaching the Lincoln Tunnel, which is moving like at two miles an hour, right. and see what's happening, or do I stay in my car? Because I figure I'm surrounded by jet fans that are calling into the van that are roasting me, you know? Right. So, so I decided to get out of the car, and as I'm knocking on the window, trying to get the door open, and I couldn't because it was kind of, like, uh, crammed in because of the accident. She got hit by a bunch of drunk guys behind her, I think. And uh, she looks kind of up and stunned at me, and she goes, Boomer, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> and she goes, man, you guys suck. <laughs> Something along that line, you know? I mean, yeah. like. I'd be like, only a jet quarterback from here could truly appreciate that. So, yeah, so I kind of did that. But the next thing you know, you know, I was signing autographs. Like, a lot of people were very nice to me. I mean, I I don't necessarily know that those people in those cars were calling into the radio station. I have no idea. All I know is that people were very nice to me. So I do have fond memories of that day. I kind of laugh about it to to this day. That is funny, though. That's what you get for being a good Samaritan. You get, you get, you suck. (laughs) And being the Jet quarterback. (laughs) And being a Jet quarterback. (laughs) Speaking of Jet quarterbacks, let's talk about uh, the current situation here. Uh, What was your... Man, what do you Sunday's game in in Cincinnati? Did uh, how stunning? What just what kind of raw emotions did that stir in you to see the Jets lose to an zero and eleven team? You know, on Friday on our radio show, um, you know, we both talked. My partner and I, Gio, uh, both talked about the Jets and having to face Andy Dalton, uh, and that the Bengals had been competitive the week before in Oakland. Their defense played tough. Uh, if they, if Andy would have played that game, they probably would have won the game. Ryan Finley had not been playing well. So we felt like, you know, why couldn't have the Jets play the, the Bengals two or three weeks earlier? Uh, this is not going to be an easy game. Uh, and like I said, the defense for the Bengals has actually been playing reasonably well, even though they are probably the worst run defense in football. So I figured maybe Le'Veon Bell was going to go over a hundred yards and would really try to pound the rock and things of that nature. I was stunned. Uh, you know, watching the game, I, I was frustrated. And the reason I was frustrated is because, uh, if, if from Le'Veon Bell's first drop pass to the plethora of just frustrating penalties just, just made it an unbearable watch. And the Jets never got into the red zone. I, and against a team that is 0 and 11, it's just like unthinkable. Right. Um, especially in this day and age with the way the rules are, the way the quarterback's playing. And then when you, Take into account the drop passes and then, you know, the, the holding penalty for a safety, I mean, by, by Kelvin Beecham. Yeah. These are things that were really, really frustrating to watch. And as a former player, you know, I've been in games like that. I'm not saying that I haven't. But I felt like after three straight weeks of 34 points and Sam really getting his game back, he was victimized by a couple really key drops and key penalties that stopped the momentum from ever happening for them. And it's one of the reasons why the game appeared to be so flat from a Jet perspective. Mm. How much do you put it on Gase, the coaching factor? Well, you know, the coach is a big factor, you know. I mean, 
but coaches get blown out all the time. I mean, you know, Bill Belichick gets blown out, you know, a couple times a year. It, I feel like everybody, you know, but he does end up winning Super Bowl. So you, you kind of give and take with him um, because he has the credibility. But for Adam, with the way this season has gone and the the difficulties that he has to, that, he, that he has had to deal with personally over the first five or six weeks of the season, nobody could have foreseen that. And and you know, coming out of it, you finally saw like what I believe is a really good football team with some good players and, uh, you know, a, a good defense, a good solid defense under Greg Williams, one of the best defensive players in football, and, uh, you know, in Jamal Adams, uh, a couple of uh, fines at cornerback. Um, now all of a sudden, you know, you, you have the makings of what you think could be a pretty good future, and then they go out and do this. So I didn't expect them to make a run for the playoffs, but I was hoping that they would be – six and seven by the time they played Thursday night in Baltimore. At least that would have made it somewhat interesting. But now I think uh, it's it's back to the drawing board. And unfortunately for Adam Gase, you know, he's got to feel the sting uh, of the criticism that comes along with having a performance like that, especially when you're an offensive coach. Yeah, I mean, that was just – that was pretty rough. Like you said, to not get in the red zone in, in an NFL game is just – um, it's pretty hard to. It's mind-boggling in this day and age. I mean, really, totally. in this day and age, with the way the rules are set up, and I mean, look, you know, Denver throws the ball down the field at the end of the game uh, yesterday against the Chargers, and this like phantom, you know, pass interference comes out of out of nowhere, and the and the Denver Broncos kick a what a forty fifty yard field goal to win the game. Yeah. I mean, like the Jets couldn't even get that. So I, I mean, it's just it it was amazing to me watching it. And uh, that's why, you know, going on and talking about it today, you know, you talk about it from the frustration standpoint because those young players should be a lot better. You know, Robbie Anderson needs to make that catch in the end zone. Darius yeah. needs to make a catch along the sideline. Um, you know, there, there, there are a number of, of opportunities that they just squandered yesterday, and now they're picking up the pieces once again, and hopefully they'll get it back this week. Yeah, so the angry mob of fans, which had it been quieted for three weeks, is now angry again, and they want a coaching change. and. I, I don't think – I mean, it's not going to happen. Christopher Johnson no, already it's said it's not, it nor should it. I, I agree with you. I mean, you just don't want to wreck the thing after one year and considering all the injuries they've had. So it sounds like you're you're on the give him time, let's see what he can do bandwagon with Gase. You're not going to – you're not I've reactionary. Seen, I've, I've, right, right. I, I've seen – you know, the one thing I have seen is I've seen Sam Darnold grow up in, right in front of our eyes, um, you know, coming off of mono first and foremost playing with mono then coming off of it playing a great game against the cowboys having the ghost nightmare game against the new england patriots and then having to succumb to all the pressures that come along with that against jacksonville and miami uh and then coming out of it and having three tremendous games and i actually thought he played reasonably well yesterday uh but he like i said he was victimized by penalties and and drop passes where they could never get anything going so I'm not going to absolve him from, you know, uh, critique or, uh, or a responsibility in yesterday's loss, but, you know, he's a young kid and he's still trying to find his way. And, you know, I think what Adam has said about him, which is so right, Rich, is that he's such a nice guy. He just really is a nice guy. And you know what? I, I think if anybody watched, uh, the Raiders, uh, do the HBO show, um, you know, before the season, um, hard knocks, right. you heard John Gruden saying to his backup quarterbacks, can we have anybody around here with some personality, please? Can somebody be an ass for for a second? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what you want. And I, I, I want, Sam is such a nice kid. He's such a high-character kid. When I heard he went out with the fellows last week, I was like, that's great. Now, I hope that don't people don't think that that trans, 
relates to what happened on Saturday, but or Sunday. But I, I do believe that he has got to get a little. He's got to get a little friskier. He's got to be a little bit more, you know, uh, in charge. And that's what I think I told a, a number of people in preseason that he's got to own this team. It's got to be his team. Mm. And I don't mean by word of mouth. I just mean by actions. And I'll tell you, the actions of him coming out of that ghost game. And the subsequent two games after that to the three-game run that he went on, uh, I thought told us and taught us a lot about who he is as a person and what he can be as a player. We all wrote about the, you know, he went to Gase after the Jacksonville game and had a conversation and and started really being a little more assertive, according to Gase. He was saying some of the stuff he liked and didn't like, let's do it this way. And Adam was really pleased to hear Sam kind of come out of his shell a little bit. When you were playing, did you ever – like just go to a coach and say, "Look, here's here's what I'd like to do. This this and that. You know, did you have a, have that conversation? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it took me a while to get there, though. I yeah. mean, very few people. You know, I have an A type personality, so I started four games my rookie year and had no idea what I was doing. But I was yelling at everybody as if I did know what I was doing. <laughs> so my personality actually helped me a little bit. I wasn't until my second year where I really started to understand. You know, the offense, the defense, how you discuss things with your teammates and your coaches, and you know, how you build a game plan, what you're looking at on film, how you translate what the other team is doing to the game plan and then try to execute it during the week. So there's a lot of things that are going to be on the young man's plate, especially when you're playing, you know, in a high-profile city, in a high-profile position. So I understand all the, um, I guess, the pressures that he has that are being thrown at him and it's coming at every which way. And, you know, first of all, nobody expected mono. And then the next thing nobody expected was seeing ghosts. Yeah. Um, and so what he has had to deal with this year, you can't understand it unless you've walked a mile in a man's shoes. Right. So I, I totally get all the pressures that he's been under and the fact that he's fought out of it and he showed great promise in the three game winning streak and the 34 point scoring. And I know the defense helped, uh, in, in, in very many ways in that little run. Um, and, and he actually, I thought, played okay yesterday. I would probably give him a C-plus to a B performance yesterday. I wouldn't yeah. give him a D. Um, but uh, he could have been a little bit better, but he also could have been helped. So I think the future is really bright for him. I, I like this kid, and I think uh, Jeff fans will really come to love him. And uh, that's why this relationship with him and Gase, have got, it's, it's got to it's, it's gotta grow, man. It's yeah. gotta, it, they got to trust each other. Sam's got to learn to trust his coach. The coach has got to get the no Sam on the field. And the fact that Gase even started with one GM and then gets a new GM halfway through the summer, and that GM really hasn't had his fingerprints on this team just yet. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that these men that are in charge here are, are dealing with that nobody else in the NFL is dealing with under the current set of circumstances. Yeah, you just led me into my next question. So if you're Joe Douglas and, you know, you're going to sit down at the end of this season and try to figure out a plan to how to improve this roster, if you were in his shoes, what are like one or two of the three things that would be on the top of your priority list to make this team better? Wow. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Now, if yeah. I look at it from an offensive standpoint, you know, I, I want, I want a top end wide receiver. You know, if Amari Cooper is going to be available, uh, be a, you know, a free agency that maybe somebody I look at, somebody along those lines. Uh, if, uh, you know, I have a high draft pick and one of those wide receivers is available from, you know, Alabama, I may be thinking that way. Um, I also know that, that he's an offensive lineman, and where did he come from? You know, he came from two places, if you think about his background, his recent background. 
Chicago and Philadelphia. And when he was in Chicago, they rebuilt the offensive and defensive line. And in Philadelphia, they rebuilt the offensive and defensive line. So I got to believe his background is telling you or telling us to expect a lot of movement in those areas. And I know that they probably feel like they want to get a top-end tackle. And the only way you could do that is if, either via free agency or a trade like the Houston Texans did, or you got to draft one high in the draft. Right. So that could be somebody that they focus in on, depending on where they fall in the draft and who's available. So, I mean, from the offensive side, that's what I'm looking at. I think their tight end position is going to be fine. I think the interior of that offensive line can always be rebuilt via free agency or mid to late round draft choices. Plenty of guards and centers will be available. Uh, on the defensive side, what does everybody want? Everybody wants new new young cornerbacks. They want athletic. They want tall. They want lean. They want guys who can go up and uh, high point the ball and, and play defense against these big wide receivers that we're seeing now. Um, and then, of course, you want a pass rusher. And, and the Jets desperately need one. they gotta, they got to find – you can't ask your safety to be the, your best pass rusher. Right. Yeah. It's, it's got to be an edge rusher of some sort. Um, and I think Greg Williams has done a pretty good job with the defense overall. Um, but I think you can you can you can damn well bet that Joe Douglas is going to be working on both the offensive and defensive lines. Would you trade Jamal Adams if someone came to you and said we'll give we'll give you a one and two twos? Is he going to get mad at me if I say yes? <laughs> no, no. Like it, you know, it's, I don't want him to get upset with me. You know, right. I mean, my God, you know, everybody's for sale. Everybody is everybody's open, right? And everybody is out there. So you, I. You, I would have to see what the numbers look like. Just a one and two twos, like is it a is it a one like twenty eight or is it a one like seven? Mm-hmm. So I mean, what are we talking about here? And I will tell you this: that prior to this whole blow up with Jerry Jones, who who I don't trust, who I think in some ways is good for the NFL, but in other ways is really bad for the NFL because Jerry Jones recruits players who are under contract by other teams by leaking trade potential trades to to the media and that's wrong he did it with earl thomas in seattle and i do believe that he did it with uh, jamal adams and the jets and he puts the, the the seattle seahawks in a bad spot and he put the jets in a bad spot and then the players react because they're emotional and they don't get it and they don't understand it and social media is all over them and this is uh you know this is jerry as he says in his own words dropping chum in the water and that chum as he's dropping it in the water is really impacting negatively the fan base and the player and of course the front office you know and joe douglas may have had conversations with jerry jones okay and that's fine he's that's his job he's supposed to have conversations with people but joe douglas isn't calling you or mark canazaro or manish man or anybody else for that matter telling you about his conversations with other teams unless he wants that out there and maybe why he wants it out there is to put pressure on that other team. But I, Joe Douglas is not that type of guy. He'll never do that. Dave Gettleman will never do that. But Jerry Jones and his band of merry men down there in Dallas do it all the time, which is a disgrace in the NFL. Yeah, and he did muddy the waters because the, the Jets had to deal with the fallout there. You know, uh, Jamal Adams is not point. talking yeah, to the GM. The yeah, and so but now... That, but then it affect, and then it affects the team. And, you know, look, the Dallas Cowboys were here, what, five weeks ago playing the Jets. Think about that. He was probably having maybe some conversations while the Jet game was going on. Who knows? Yeah. But that's that chum that he keeps talking about thrown out there. And he has a lack of regard, uh, or, or I guess he has a disregard for the, the local uh, shrapnel that gets thrown around and who has to deal with picking up all the pieces. 
when a guy on the other end of the phone starts yapping to the media in his city and all of a sudden it finds its way to Adam Schefter on ESPN, mm. your company, and next thing you know, all hell breaks loose. And, of course, then the Jet fans start saying, oh, I can't believe the Jets are going to be trading the best player they have. I mean, that's not, that never even came close to happening. Yeah. yeah so it, it's, it's all because of Jerry Jones, and I hope Jet fans know that. Well, it'll be a story in the off season, um, you know, because I do, I do think Jamal will go to the Jet. Will try to get a new contract. He'll he'll be eligible after his third year, and he and he should. And he's going to be wanted. Wants to be the highest paid safety, and he could probably make a case for for being right up there. I mean, based on his production this year. So the Jets will have to decide whether do we pay fifteen million a year for a strong safety, or do we get the draft picks and use the money to reinvest it in other positions. That's going to well, be well. Here's the. Right, and here's the situation they're in. They're in this situation that the Giants were in with Odell Beckham Jr., the Rams were in with Aaron Donald. Yeah. You know, I know Jamal likes to compare himself to Aaron Donald and Tom Brady and people like that. That's fine. He can do that. But I will say that I, I did talk to other coaches prior to uh, some of this stuff uh, regarding Jamal Adams, and, and two of the coaches in particular that I spoke to that uh, that are you know with other teams told me that, that he is the best safety in football. They told me flat out he's the best safety in football. He is a, he is a gamer. He's, a, he, he's got instincts on the field that are akin to Troy Palomalu. And uh, Coach wow. uh, Cower has even uh, second those things because you know, Coach Cower you know, loved Troy Palomalu. He goes, he sees a lot of that type of player in Jamal, meaning that it's like some of these kids go on the football field and it's, they feel like they were born there and they have this instinctive ability to do things and that ultimately creates a Hall of Famer if they truly want to be great. I mean, you know, Ronnie Lott wanted to be great. He put the time and the effort into it, and he played that safety position like nobody I ever played against. Smartest guy I ever played against on the field. And I think that's the kind of guy that Jamal Adams can grow into. I think we see the physical abilities there now. Uh, I wouldn't want the Jets to trade him unless they got an offer that they couldn't refuse. Um, I think he's a building block. I think he and Sam are the two guys that you want to build around and that you want to, you know, hopefully have here for the next, you know, seven to 10 years. But in this league, anything is possible. And the way money gets tossed around and cap situations and bad contracts, uh, sometimes teams make decisions for other reasons as well. And the way that given the Jets long history of blowing second round picks, I'm not sure if I want to have the extra twos, uh, you know, that just because you get draft picks doesn't mean you're going to use them well. So maybe hopefully Joe Douglas can reverse that trend. (laughs) Well, you, you hope. I mean, you know, for the most part, when you think about you know, some of the first-round picks that they've had here, I mean, that, that have turned out to be pretty good. But, you know, if Sam turns out to be the guy that we all think he is, then that's the ultimate draft pick. That's the ultimate thing that the Jets have not had. They've never had a true, I, I guess, Kenny Anderson. Was, Kenny Anderson. Kenny O'Brien was a guy that they drafted, and he was their guy until I got here. And, every, you know, then maybe it was uh, Chad Pennington could have been that guy, and then he got hurt, and then they – you know, Vinny was a guy for a little while, but he was a, he's a mercenary. Brett Favre was a mercenary. They thought that Sanchez may have been the guy. He didn't turn out to be the guy. Then it was Geno Smith. He was not going to be the guy. Right. So now you got to hope that Sam Darnold happens to be the guy. And he can make everybody else around him better. I actually think the offensive line has gotten better as Sam has gotten healthier and better himself, simply because he's communicating better on the field. And another year in this offense and another year uh, coming back in the offseason and working with uh, Adam should make uh, the whole situation even better than it is right now.
All right. Well, we'll have to see. It'll be as when you cover the Jets, it's always an interesting off season. So I think (laughs) it'll be another one of those interesting off seasons coming up. And Boomer, I can't thank you enough. I know we all know you have such a busy media schedule. You have more jobs than anyone, and I don't know how you do it, but you know you've always been really good to me, going way back to 1993 when you you came in. Uh, you know, from East Islip, you know, so we had that Sachem East Islip rivalry going there. And, uh, again, negative. Negative. Me again. Well, I don't want to say you won the championship game your senior year, but, you know, I, you know, I think, I think Sachem might have pulled that one out. Yeah, they might have won the game, but we won the Rutgers Cup, so calm down there, Chief. Okay. Hey, all the respect to East (laughs) Islip because I know Sal Champy and I have, that guy is a legend. So I, I do. I do have a total respect for East Iceland. But, Boomer, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can't thank you enough, and hopefully we'll catch up soon down the road. Sounds good, Rich. Always love talking about the Jets with you. All righty. Take it easy. And this is the third quarter. It's our Twitter mailbag time, and Jet fans obviously have a lot of emotions and questions they'd like to vent this week coming off that Cincinnati game. So uh, let's start with at Matt Romano 19, one of our uh, loyal followers. So let's get Matt in there. He says, watching the games on TV, I never see Gase communicating much with the players on the sidelines. He seems to sit back and game plan by himself on the bench. How's his relationship with the players that aren't our franchise quarterback? Do you sense any rift between the coaching staff and players? You know, that's a really perceptive observation, Matt, because, you know, Adam does not talk to a lot of players on the sideline. You will occasionally see him talk to Darnold on the sideline, but he is usually off in his own little world, and it's totally an offensive world. He has nothing to do with the defense. It's like the Jets have two head coaches with Greg Williams handling the defense, Gase on offense, and it's different. I have to admit, you know, it is different. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that coaching style. I think the coach should engage you even see Belichick sometimes go around the sideline and address the offensive line and so forth. So it is weird. I don't think there's a rift or anything. I think it's just his coaching style. Next, uh, from at Dan Schnock, given your long history of covering the Jets, I was curious about some off the field topics. Which Jets team had the best locker room in your opinion and why? The worst and also the most and least favorite coach to cover. Thanks. I've really enjoyed the podcast. Well, thank you, Dan. And, you know, this is tough. You know, when you cover 31 different teams, uh, you know, variations of the same team over 31 years, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, I have I'm probably an affinity for some of the older locker rooms, uh, the 1998 team with Vinny Testaverde and Wayne Corbett and Keyshawn Johnson. That was a really good locker room to cover, a really good bunch of guys. And and I've said this many times, even though they were awful in 95 and 96 under Rich Kotite. You know, great bunch of guys in that locker room. Still keep in touch with a bunch of those guys, the Marvin Washingtons, the Jeff Lagamans of the world. Um, just good, good guys. And uh, Marvin Jones is a, is a good friend. So those are my favorite, my, my favorite coaches to cover. You know, just from a media standpoint, I would say Rex Ryan, of course, because he's so, Larger than life. And then, you know, Parcells, because he was larger than life and his moods changed every day. You never knew what you were going to get. And you know, I also learned a lot about football from covering Bill Parcells because he would explain things in a way they had never heard from any coach before. My least favorite coaches, Bruce Coslett and I really did not get along too well. I, I was not a fan of his coaching. And of course, Rich Kotite, 
who was just a bad coach, and uh, we did not get along too great. And I was highly critical of his coaching, as as of course he deserved to be, because they were what four and twenty eight under him. Next question comes from at Joe underscore Lacalandra. Do you see the Jets letting Robbie Anderson walk after the year? If so, how do they go about rebuilding their wide receiving group? Uh, a very valid question, Joe, because Robbie will be an unrestricted free agent, and I do think they're going to let him walk. And his price tag's going to be high. You know, he's going to be asking for. Well, it's not going to be as high as it was because his numbers are really down this year, but he's going to be looking for at least 10 or 12 million a year. I don't think they see him as that kind of player. Um, there's some flaws in his game. Now you saw him play a, a strong game on against Cincinnati on Sunday, even though he should have caught that pass in the end zone. You know, he did show the ability to make tough catches in traffic. And I know that drives the coaches crazy sometimes because he doesn't lay out for balls. And when it's a 50-50 ball, he tends to be out-muscled. But he showed some of that good stuff against Cincinnati. It's an encouraging sign. But I just think the price tag is going to be high. There's a lot of good receivers in this draft. I think the Jets are really intrigued by those Alabama receivers. Um, starting with Jerry Judy and uh, and on down the list. So I, I think they'll rebuild it through the draft. Next question. Uh, let's see here. What should we go with? Uh, what about Avery? This comes from uh, Nick's Jets 27. Will Avery Williamson be back next year? Now, he's got one year left on his contract. That's next year. And I tend to say no, though, because he's coming off an ACL surgery his cap number is about eight million next year, and I I could see them trying to renegotiate that and making him uh, see if he'll take a pay cut because he is a good player. He's a good first and second down player, but at eight million for a guy coming off an ACL, I don't see it. So I think they'd probably want to cut bait on that and maybe try to renegotiate uh, after that because, like I said, uh, you know they'll have um, C.J. Mosley back next year and they have. Uh, Cashman will be back next year. So they have some options. So I don't think they're going to pay that kind of money. Uh, next question from at Mary NYC one has Gase lost the locker room. Will Chris Johnson be hearing from free agents in the off season that their clients want to be traded if Gase returns next year? I think we need to put this loss in perspective. Uh, it was a bad, bad loss, like really historically bad. But it was one game, and we tend to overreact in the NFL. I admit sometimes I'm guilty of that too. It's just the nature of the beast, and we have to keep it in perspective. Last week, everything was you know great because they were on a three-game winning streak. So no, I don't think Adam Gase has lost the locker room. Uh, do I think every player in the locker room is on board with him and totally respects him as a coach? No, I don't think so. I think there's some players who are lukewarm toward him, for sure. But I don't think he's lost the locker room. i tell you one thing, though. This game against Miami will be really interesting to see how they react to this kind of loss. And I don't think it'll affect them in free agency. Uh, I think the one thing that could affect them is the way they've handled injured players. Uh, the Yosemite situation jumps to mind. I think that really put the team in a very unflattering light, just the way they handle that injury grievance. That sort of stuff gets noticed by players around the league and players in their own locker room. So that could affect them in free agency. And our last question from at, uh, at JWP1022. How many new starters will there be on the offensive line next year? Uh, will 
a lot. I could see at least four new starters on the offensive line. The only guy who I think could be back as a starter could be Chuma Adoga, the right tackle currently injured. I think the current coaching staff likes him. They like his uh, long-term potential as a pass protector. He has some some interesting traits just because of his agility and his foot speed, and I think they want to develop that. I don't think you could start with five new starters in one offseason. A complete overhaul is really asking a lot, but I do think you'll see a new right tackle because Brian Winters won't be back. I think you could see a new center. You're going to see a new left guard for sure. And uh, and left tackle, you know, Beecham's a free agent, so you could see an, a left tackle. I think they'll look to draft a left tackle with a top 10 draft pick. And that is the end of the third quarter. Well, the Jets are heading into the final four games of the season, the final quarter of the season. We know at 4-8, and eight, they virtually have no playoff chance whatsoever. Their performance in Cincinnati pretty much eliminated the faint hope of playoffs. So let's talk about... What can the, what, what is there to look forward to over these last four games? If you're a Jets fan, you know, why should you tune in? Why should you go to these games? What is there to tune into? What is there to be interested in about? So here's a few things. And all of these things are geared towards the offseason and next year, which is the way we should be looking at it from this, from through a prism of 2000, of 2020. Because the season's over, let's look ahead and how they can make this team better. And the first thing you want to watch over the last four games is Sam Darnold. He's obviously made some good progress over the last few games since he came back from Mono, since he went through that, you know, that rough patch in the beginning, in the middle of the year. He's got a good thing going. And the one thing he's done better the last couple of weeks is he's eliminated the turnovers. Even as bad as the offense played in Cincinnati, Sam had no turnovers. He did a good job of securing the ball. He did take a number of hits you know, from pass rushers, and he managed to secure the ball. There were no fumbles. And so that's something that's good. You want to build on that. You want Sam to have a a season-ending run like he did last year. The last four games, the arrows pointing up. That would really give the team a little bit of momentum going into the offseason. The second thing, I want to see something from Quinn and Williams. Uh, I know he's starting to become a polarizing player among fans. You know, some say it's too soon to panic. You know, he's a rookie. Other people are like, oh, this guy's a bust. I'm somewhere in the middle on it because it is too early to panic. He's only 21 years old. I mean, let's give the kid a chance to develop a little bit. It's too soon to draw any conclusions. But he's played about 150 snaps over the last four games, and he's only got four tackles and no sacks. And I know production can be misleading for defensive linemen, and I just want to see some production over the last four games. I want to see one or two disruptive plays a game. I'm not expecting him to be Bosa or Josh Allen or now Ed Oliver's on fire with the Bills. Let's just let him be the best Quinn and Williams he can be, and let's just show something, a spark here and there, something to build on for next off season. Another thing you're looking at is Robbie Anderson. And we touched on this in the third quarter with a Twitter question about his future. I think the Jets have to decide whether they want to go long-term with Robbie. He's going to be a free agent. My sense now that I get is that they probably let him hit free agency and that he'll probably move on. Now, he did have an encouraging game against Cincinnati, 100 yards receiving, tough catches, showing some toughness. You like to see that. Can he maintain it over the last four games? If he can, maybe he can change my mind about what things look like for him in the long term. 
Another thing is Le'Veon Bell. He's under contract for three more years. We know that really doesn't mean much in the NFL. Uh, I know where I stand on this. It's like, I don't think he's a good match for the Jets. I think this marriage has run its course after one year. I would look to trade him in the offseason. It's going to require eating some of that contract. He's got $13 million guaranteed coming to him. You're going to have to eat some of that to entice a team to trade something for him. I would go ahead and do that. I just don't think he's right for the Jets. I'm not you know, bashing him as a player. I'm just saying it's not the right fit because of the line, the offense, and so forth. So I think the Jets have to figure that out over the next four games. I have a feeling I know what they're thinking. I think they're probably in the way I think and that it's time to move on. But let's let it play out. Let's see if he can have a breakout game. And the last big issue is going to be Jamal Adams. Uh, I don't think he'll play on Sunday against Miami. He's got a sprained ankle. He's going for an MRI. Tests weren't available as of late Monday. But uh, I'd kind of be surprised if he plays this week. They obviously don't want to rush him back. The games are meaningless. It's not like they're playing for anything. So let him get healthy before he comes back. Why force it? And so they're going to have to make a decision. We talked about this in the second quarter with Boomer. You know, do you trade a guy like that? Do you say, okay, we don't want to pay you $15 million a year as a strong safety. We'd rather get draft pick compensation and use that to rebuild the offensive line and take the money and invest it elsewhere. So they're going to have to make that decision. And so let's see how things play out with Jamal Adams. You know, he's become it's like you have to listen to everything he says because it's it seems he seems to throw out little crumbs out there, you know, about his mood and about, you know, how committed he is. And so it looked like he was all in as of a week ago. But then after the game, he's in tears in 31 years of covering the Jets. I don't think I've covered a player after a loss who was, you know, who was fighting back tears like that before. So I wonder where his head is. And so that's a storyline we're going to be following after the, over the next four games. And then it becomes the Joe Douglas show in the offseason. How is he going to make this team better? He's got a massive job on his hands, probably more so than he anticipated when he came in. But that's why he got a six-year contract, because he knew this was not going to be an overnight rebuild. So those are some of the storylines I'm going to be following for sure. You're going to be le- reading a lot of those kind of stories on ESPN.com over the next four weeks, because the games at this point are basically meaningless. You're going to follow the storylines as we look forward to, you know, what the Jets hope is a brighter future. And that's the end of this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Boomer Esiason. I could talk Jets with him for hours. He's just such a really good guy and always brings an interesting perspective to the table. So thanks for Boomer for coming on this week's show. Thanks to my producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting it all together. And as I said at the top, please subscribe to Flight Deck. You can find it wherever you fly, find your podcasts. Uh, give us a chance and check us out. we got some good stuff here as this season winds down. Be sure to give us a listen. Thanks for all the support. And just remember, I'll leave you with this. When in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.